بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين سبحانك لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين وبعد الحمد لله continuing with the دروس of and the lessons of علوم القرآن uh, we commence from the aspect of Nuzul al-Qur'an, the descent of the Qur'an. This is a very important aspect and it has got a strong link with, uh, with Aqeedah, or the subject of Aqeedah, which is the creed and belief of, of the Muslimin. So firstly we have, when we say the descent of the Qur'an, these two words are used to describe it's, it's two types of conditions in which the Qur'an was revealed, which we refer to. The first, <clears throat> and this is the part which is actually linked to the point of Aqeedah, because it deals with the attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to Allah al-Mahfuz, the preserved tablet. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best when this happened. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, بَلْ هُوَ قُرْآنٌ مَجِيدٌ فِي لَوْحٍ مَحْفُوظٍ So the first coming down of the Qur'an was what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed to be preserved from His divine speech on the preserved tablet. I'm going to try not to be too technical with the polemics of the subject of Aqeedah, but a very important point to understand and remember with regards to our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, He possesses beautiful sifat, al-asma al-sifat, beautiful names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And how to understand these particular attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we have been taught in the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as well as in the Holy Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us explicit verses in the Qur'an which gives us the, the, the principles by which we understand what to believe about Allah. Um, I'm just digressing from the topic, so we will come back to this point, but I feel it very important for us to understand a certain points with regards to the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically are found in the verse, Laysa kamithlihi shaykh, there is nothing like Allah. So amongst the attributes of Allah, He has qudra, He has power, He has ilm, He has sama' basar, the, the power of... Um, the quality of hearing, perfect hearing, perfect sight, and he also has speech. This is an attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do not resemble the attributes of his makhluk and his creation, which is understood by the principle of the verse, Laysa kamithlihi shay, there is nothing like Allah. In fact, Surah Al-Ikhlas, which is the commonly recited surah and well-known surah, is, gives us the foundation upon which we need to understand what to believe in Allah. And I'll just give you an example, Surah Ikhlas. And generally the translation we all know. I'll give you the quick normal translation and I'll tell you what it actually means. So, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدْ قُلْ means say, Allahu Ahad, say, say Allah is one. Allahu Samad, say Allah is independent. لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ He does not beget, nor was he begotten. He doesn't give birth, nor was birth given unto him. وَلَمْ يَكُلْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدْ And there is nothing the like unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the translation. But the meaning is ahad, Say Allah is Ahad Ahad means that being that does not comprise of components 
لا يتجزأ. So just saying one in English is an incomplete summary of the meaning of the verse. So أحد doesn't mean a number one. It means that being that doesn't have components. It doesn't have body parts the way human beings or creation do. Allah الصمد Allah سبحانه وتعالى is الصمد. الصمد means he is totally independent of his creation. But just saying independent is half the translation because the word samad means Allah does not need his creation but the entire creation needs him. So that's the full meaning of the verse. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. We say he, was, he does not beget nor was he begotten. The actual meaning is Allah is not a form from which something comes out nor did he come out to emanate from anything else. He doesn't have a form or a shape. Wa lam yakul lahu kufuwan ahad and is nothing the like unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So amongst his attributes, one of the attributes is al-kalam. The sifa of kalam, the attribute of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now this um, quality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it doesn't resemble our speech, it doesn't require teeth, it doesn't require a tongue, it doesn't require vocal cords, and it doesn't comprise of a voice and letters. This is an attribute of Allah which only Allah himself knows. This particular kalam of Allah, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah allowed his speech to be preserved on the sacred tablet, Allah al-Mahfuz. And Allah selected and chose the Arabic language to be the medium of conveying the, the message of his quality, of his kalam, of his speech, which is preserved on this tablet. So the Lawh Mahfuz, the preserved tablet, which we commonly hear, fi lawhim mahfuz in al buruj this is a creation of Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed this particular creation to be able to bear the weight of the mighty, of the words which represent the quality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is what is referred to, بَلْ هُوَ قُرْآنٌ مَجِيدٌ فِي لَوْحٍ مَحْفُوظٌ When we talk about the revelation of the Qur'an, the descent of the Qur'an, the first reference is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved his kalam on the lawh mahfuz. Okay, this is the first uh, meaning in which the word nuzul or descent refers to. The second is from the preserved tablet, the Lawh Mahfuz, to Baytul Izzah or Al Baytul Ma'mur, which is a structure in the first heaven around which the Malaika make tawaf. So, like we have the Baytullah and the Kaaba in Makkah Mukarramah, directly above the Kaaba in the first heaven, there is a similar structure around which the Malaika make tawaf, and that is, this is called Baytul Izzah. So from the Lawh Mahfuz, all at once, the Qur'an in its entirety was revealed to Baytul Izzah, to the Sama'ud Dunya, the sky of, of our world. And then thereafter, from Al-Baytul Ma'mur, or what is called Baytul Izzah, to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam over a period of 23 years. So recapping again, when we say the descent of Qur'an, we're referring to two things, and two things are generally discussed in this particular point. One is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pres preserving uh, his kalam and his speech on the preserved tablet, Allah mahfuz, in the Arabic language. And that happened at a time only when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. There's no mention of it. Nobody will be questioned about it um, in our creed. Secondly, the second uh, uh, reference to Nuzul would be when it was now transferred from the Lawh mahfuz to the Baytul Izzah, which um, happened on Laylatul Qadr. When we say, Inna anzalnahu fi Laylatul Qadr, it refers to actually this descent of the Qur'an from Lawh Mahfuz. So on Laylatul Qadr, the entire Qur'an in its entirety, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent it down with Jibreel alayhi salam and the Malaika to 
Baytul Izza or the Sama in the heavens of this world. And then from Baytul Ma'mur to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam over a period of 23 years. Now, we will discuss inshallah as to why the Quran was not revealed all at once <clears throat> as it was for, as the revelations were revealed to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam for example. And the first revelation came upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam at the age of 40. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam received his revelation and he met Jibreel alayhi salam and the story of the Ghar of Hira is well known and commonly discussed. So we will not go too much into the details of how that commenced and how Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was instructed with Iqra, the words of uh, reading, which is the essential message to the ummah to ensure that they maintain this attribute and quality of reading because it makes it equips them to be able to face the challenges uh, in this world, whether it be in terms of dunya or deen. Okay, the next point is the wisdoms behind the gradual descent. So why was the Qur'an not sent down all at once as it was to perhaps some, some of the other anbiya alayhim salatu wassalam and also to Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam for example. The first point or the first point of hikmah and wisdom behind the gradual descent of the Qur'an is to strengthen Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's heart. So say for example, there was some difficulty being endured by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was under stress, he was being persecuted. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed some verses about the previous Anbiya alayhimu salatu wassalam. As Allah says, وَكُلَّنْ نَقُصُّ عَلَيْكَ مِنْ أَنْبَاءِ الرُّسُلِ مَا نُثَبِّتُ بِهِ فُؤَادَكَ And all these events that we have revealed unto you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we revealed it unto you so that we can strengthen and, and make your heart firm and give you comfort at this time of difficulty. So if the whole Qur'an was revealed all at once, then the, the comfort which is intended at a particular juncture would not have been so effective as it is when it comes at that particular point in time when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills for it to be revealed. So from, from Baytul Izza, from Samaud Dunya, it comes down according to how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam to present it to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The second point and hikmah is to make it easier for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba to memorize. Because, um, yes, the, the, the Arabs were good with memorizing their poetry or perhaps were good with their language, but the Quran is not poetry. And this is why one of the miraculous uh, characteristics of the Quran was the fact that people who knew the system of, po of poetry in Arabic, the Arabic uh, poetry is not like English, you know, you just put everything together and make it rhyme at the end. They've got scales and there's a particular balance which is required uh, in, in the Arabic uh, form of uh, poetic speech. And the Arabs knew they were masters in that particular field. So when Rasulullah sallallahu would recite, they would, they would know that this is, not, this is not poetry. It doesn't have a scale. It doesn't have a scale which is balancing onto the, the commonly known scales in the Arabic language. For example, the story of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab in Makkah Mukarrama, once he was <coughs> standing on one side of the Kaaba and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was reciting Salah, uh, Surah Al-Haqqah. And Surah Al-Haqqah has got a description of the previous nations and also what will happen on the day of Qiyamah. A very, the words of the surah also have a great effect on the, on the heart. Al-haqqatum al-haqqah. So those words all have, and Sayyidina Umar is standing and is listening. And uh, the, some, the, as it comes to the verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, خُذُوهُ 
ثم الجحيم صلوه grab him and snatch him and fling him into the fire of Jahannam uh, Sayyidina Umar is standing and he says uh, what, a, what a good poet this is he's talking to himself and Rasulullah sallallahu happens to be reciting and he comes to the verse فَلَا أُقْسِمُ بِمَا تُبْصِرُونَ وَمَا لَا تُبْصِرُونَ إِنَّهُ لَقَوْلُ رَسُولٍ كَرِيمٍ وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ شَاعِرٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it such and they say the ulama say this was the time where Sayyidina Umar's heart was affected first with, with uh, the, the beauty of, of Islam where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa while reciting in his mind he thinks what beautiful poetry this because it's all rhyming الحاقه ملحاقه وما أدراك ملحاقه so all the verses seem to be rhyming so he says uh, what, a group, what a good sha'ir and a good poet this is and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath on all the things which he has created whether you can see them or not these are the words of the mighty messenger it's not the word of a poet and Sayyidina Umar is, is shocked that I thought these words and he, and he says he's not, he's not a poet perhaps he's a soothsayer and a fortune teller who works with some evil uh, tools of the unseen perhaps he's a kahin it is called a kahin in Arabic and then the next verse is, وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ كَاهِنْ قَلِيلًا مَا تَذَكَّرُونَ So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa recited the verse saying that he's not a fortune teller, a soothsayer, he's not telling the future. تَنْزِيلٌ مِّن رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ This is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the verses were revealed. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَقُرْآنًا فَرَقْنَاهُ لِتَقْرَأَهُ عَلَى النَّاسِ عَلَى مُكْثٍ وَنَزَّلْنَاهُ تَنْزِيلًا That you recite it slowly and people uh, absorb and understand the message of the Quran. This is why uh, when we recite in the Quran, whether it be in our taraweeh or whether it be in our normal recitation, such a pace should be adopted, uh, which a person can enjoy the recitation and uh, the people listening can also enjoy. In any case, this was the second hikmah behind the gradual descent of the Quran that the Sahaba were able now, many of them were not young, some were old in age, so it would be easier for them to memorize the verses of the Quran, which was actually the foundation of the educational system of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, if it was not for the quran Kareem and the beautiful verses of the Quran, the Arabic language would have become extinct like Latin. And this is not an exaggeration. In fact, if you listen to the, to the Arabic spoken nowadays, you know, in some parts of the Arab countries, they, they, for the letter Kaf, they pronounce it as Ch. So they say Chochachola. For Coca-Cola, they say Chochachola. If they say kaifa haluka, they say chef haluch. So if, if it was not for the blessings of the recitation of the Qur'an, then the same Arabic would have transformed into something else. It would have become like Latin, which is perhaps referred to uh, in terms of jurisprudence or uh, you know, law, but it's not a spoken language. So to make it easier for Rasulullah sallallahu and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to memorize, this was the second uh, wisdom of the, uh, the descent of the Qur'an in this gradual form. <clears throat> the third point of hikmah and wisdom was to make it easy for the Sahaba anhum to act upon. Because sometimes there's a new instruction and injunction given to them and something they're totally unfamiliar with. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse and they become accustomed to a particular practice. And even when there is a prohibition, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gradually led them to it, like the prohibition of intoxicants and khamar, where they were told first that there is within it a great sin. Uh, 
but there is benefit as well. So there was just an indication that you need to be cautious with regards to the harms of alcohol. And as it progressed, some of the Sahaba already, uh, through their insight or their understanding, some people get the hint easier. You know, in a class also, when a teacher says something, then the, the, the student who pays more attention understands, okay, we're heading in that direction, let me rather stop from now. So some of the Sahaba, عنهم, they left the habit of drink, t- taking and consuming alcohol when this verse was revealed. Then the next verse came uh, when uh, some of the Sahaba عنهم, performed salah and they just consumed some alcohol and it affected the recitation in their salah, reciting the verse inappropriately or incorrectly. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed another verse. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu la taqrabu salata wa antum sukara. Do not go close to salah while being in a state of intoxicants. And thereafter the prohibition came. So it was to make it easy for the sahaba radiallahu anhum who are now the initial receivers of the revelation to be able to absorb this mighty weight and responsibility which has to now be preserved as a legacy for the generations to come. The fourth point of hikmah and wisdom was correspondence with real-time events. That there were many verses in the Qur'an which, which were revealed at a time when something happened. Like, for example, there's, there's the incident of uh, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum, the blind, blind Sahabi. Uh, he was the mu'adhin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse, لَا يَسْتَوِي الْقَاعِدُونَ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُجَاهِدُونَ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ those people who remain behind and those who, who go in the path of Allah to, to make an effort to spread the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are not equal. Another sahabi was blind and he was unable to obviously join any expedition or any, any group that was traveling out of Medina Munawwara. He was generally appointed as the imam or the muaddin in Rasulullah sallallahu absence. So he was saddened. He came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he said, Ya Rasulullah, that the revelation of a particular verse has has saddened me. So Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi said, how can the verse, the revelation of a verse sadden you? He said, O oh, Nabi of Allah, the verse is saying that those people who go out to spread the deen and those who stay behind, they cannot be equal. And I've got a valid excuse. I'm blind. I cannot go out. So Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi remained silent. And after some time, another part of the verse was revealed. لا يستوي القاعدون من المؤمنين غير الضرر Besides those people who have weakness and sickness, they have been exempted from this comparison between those who go out and those who remain behind. They have a valid excuse not to, not to go out. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to praise him for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considering his condition in the revelation of a verse. So that part of the verse now was revealed in, the, in conjunction with something which, which happened on, on the ground, which happened in this dunya. So if the entire Qur'an was revealed all at once, then this particular point which is related to a particular specific event would not have become evident. And in fact, via, via this um, way of revealing the Qur'an, the status of that particular Sahabi also now became evident and the value that he has by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, correspondence with real-time events was one of the benefits of the Qur'an revealing, being revealed uh, gradually. The next uh, point of hikmah was to show the i'jaz and the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. Uh, the, the challenge was, was, was uh, made from the outset that is there any person who wishes to present 10 verses or present one verse or a surah equal to the, uh, to the, the words of the Qur'an and that challenge has never been taken on up to, to, up to this day. And to, to make that type of challenge 
of the miraculous nature of the Quran, even more intense upon the, the, the kuffar at that time, it was revealed gradually. So you've got enough time to prepare even to challenge one particular verse. Like we said last week about Abdullah bin Muqaffa, six months he tried to prepare something, and he heard one verse of, of the 12th Jews, and he said, well, there's nothing I can do uh, to compare to the, the, the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he became Muslim because of that. So the, it, it just magnifies the miraculous nature of the Qur'an that it was revealed over such a long period of time. If it was revealed at once, and we say, okay, nobody could meet the challenge at one time. Okay, that is great enough, but now over a period of 23 years, and then we have Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam teaching the Sahaba to recite it uh, in various dialects. So they've got a various pronunciation, the way we hear in the, in the Qiraat, uh, the various uh, methods of recitation which we hear the Qur'an reciting. So that that also intensifies the challenge because, okay, if this is one reading, then there's another reading. You, you, if you could challenge it, then try it in that particular reading. So if it's one accent, you could perhaps try to challenge in this accent or that accent or the third accent. But none of them were able to, to do so. And this actually showed the, 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 the weight of the i'jaz and the, how the Qur'an made uh, people unable to respond. We say i'jaz in the form of a miracle, but the actual meaning of, of i'jaz is such a miracle which makes people unable to respond. They are unable to present anything similar to it. Now, the next point, after we've come now to understand the hikmah and the wisdom behind why the Qur'an was revealed gradually, the preservation during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. How was the Qur'an preserved during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? This is a very important uh, topic. And this is actually one of the avenues through which sometimes people uh, could become confused and they, they feel that um, the, Quran, or the objection made by some Orientalists is that the Qur'an was not uh, compiled or written in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So how was the Qur'an preserved during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? It should be kept in mind and never ever be deceived by the objection of the Orientalists when they say that it was written afterwards in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu or the time of Sayyidina Uthman because it was a known fact that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had scribes even in Makkah Mukarramah. And they would write down, although the, yes, there, there was a shortage of literate individuals amongst the Arabs. They were very proud of their language, but they didn't have many individuals who were well equipped with, with uh, being able to write down or document what they are speaking. So their language was more internalized. It was something looking at, at the external factors in the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they developed the language to a great extent. The, the, the depth of the Arabic language is, is amazing. In fact, for a horse in the Arabic language, there's 114 names just for a horse. If you do the chapter of zakah in jurisprudence in fiqh, we find that for a camel, if it's one year old, it's got a name. When it's two years old, it's got another name. When it's three years old, it's got another name. According to how much teeth it has in its mouth, the names change. A horse, if it has one, one white foot, it's got a different name. If it's got all four are white, if it's got a white mark on its forehead. So there's various names. In fact, the word horse itself, one of the names which is used in the Qur'an, I'm digressing now, just to give you an example of the depth of the language, the word khayl is used, khayl, wal khayla wal bighal in the Qur'an. So the word khayl comes from the word khayal. Khayal means a person's, um, his ego or his impression or his image of himself. 
you know. So in those days, perhaps comparatively, a person who possessed the, the horse, he might have been a bit more affluent than those riding the mule or the, or the donkey or camel. Um, so the, from all the hundred, hundred some odd names of the word horse, the word khayl was chosen because it's a word which is universal. It will continue even after people stop using horses. That the mode of transport which has an effect on a person's self-image. When he's in, when he's in or on that mode of transport, he, he feels that it could possibly have an effect on his, on his uh, impression of himself. And it's not far-fetched because some of those cars also have a horse on them. Okay, so... <laughs> so the primary means of preservation was memory and script. This is the fundamental, the two things which were used to protect the Qur'an was always the script, which was from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How do we know that it was preserved? Because when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made his effort in Makkah Mukarramah, we all know the story of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu when he heard about his sister embracing Islam, and then he came to the house and Sayyidina Khabbab was there and she was with her husband, and then he saw some parchments with Surah Taha. So that was written in order for them to be reading and learning and teaching it. It was written in, 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 in their possession. Yes, the, the thing which is acknowledged is that these uh, suar and chapters that were written were perhaps fragmented and they were, they were scattered amongst the, the, the community at that time. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he allowed them, and he, in fact, the initial instruction in Sharia was to write only the verses of the Qur'an and not the hadith in the beginning in Makkah Mukarramah. The hadith afterwards the Sahaba wrote in the lifetime of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's another topic also altogether about the preservation of the hadith. But to, dis, to, to allow the Sahaba to become familiar with when Rasulullah sallallahu is relating verses that have been revealed and when it is his own speech, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him for a short period of time, don't write my words. When you write, you write what I tell you is uh, attributed to Allah as in the form of Qur'an. So the memory was the primary source of protecting the Qur'an and this is unique with our deen. Um, no other religion has got this dual uh, process of preserving any particular script from its original source. So the, 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 the words have, were written down and eventually after the first period of Makkah, when Rasulullah interacted with the people of Medina Munawara, they came to they came for Hajj and they met him in Mina in Aqaba, which is the famous story of Sirah. Rasulullah gave them copies of all the surahs that were revealed up to that point. And and when he came to Medina Munawara at the time of Hijrah, they presented a young man to him and they said, Oh Muhammad, oh Rasulullah, we've got this young boy. He's memorized all the surahs that you had handed over to us in Aqaba in Mina, and his name is Zaid ibn Thabit. So all this is a historical proof that the script of the Qur'an did not commence after the demise of Rasulullah sallallahu which is a very, very important point. It is sometimes a point which people object against the authenticity of Qur'an and we get caught off guard in trying to answer according to the incorrect uh, commencement of the, of the question. So the primary means of the preservation was memory and script, both these two together, memorizing. And in fact, in the Battle of Badr, when those when the, amongst the Quraysh, the, those who were unable to, to pay a ransom for their freedom, what was their ransom? Rasulullah said, you should te teach 10 of our Muslims, whether it be their children or the adults, to read and write. And um, which means it was, and reading and writing would then refer to what they would use for the, for the Quran. So 
why wasn't the Quran compiled during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam? In other words, why wasn't it put in a book form? So we understand it was it was written and the script was preserved, uh, but it was not compiled in the form of one book. Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam was alive, and the Sahaba could refer back to him at any time. So if there's you see, when a verse was revealed, Rasulullah would say, Where's Zayd bin Thabit? Call Zayd bin Thabit. Call, call Umar bin al-Khattab. And then he would say, Zayd, this particular verse was revealed. Place it in this surah after this verse, before this verse. So he would be told exactly where to put the verse. This is why the last verse to be revealed upon Rasulullah as majority of the scholars agree, is which is at the end of Surah Baqarah. Uh, at the end of Surah Baqarah, we have the last page, which is Before that, there's a long verse which deals with uh, trade and commerce and how we need to document our, our contracts. And the verse before that is where this verse was placed. So Rasulullah told him, so although the verse was revealed last, but where it needed to be placed was also given with the instruction of Rasulullah sallallahu So if it's going to be compiled in one book form, then now when it's time for you to place a verse in between two verses, it becomes difficult to do so. So this was also amongst the hikmah and the points of not having it compiled at that time in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu Then it was also the golden age, which was khayrul qurun, many qurra. And when we say qurra is the plural of qari. In the terminology of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a qari is not just a person who recites like how we have understood certain words to be. You say the word qari and they say, well, it's a person, maybe he reads qirat a little bit and he reads with a tune, so that's a qari. In the time of the Sahaba, this wasn't the case. A qari was a person who was the most learned. So this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, The one who should lead you should be the one who is the most knowledgeable with the knowledge of Qur'an. So aqra in the meaning of a'lam, a person who is well-versed. So there were many qurra, and the Islamic empire was relatively small. So it was Medina Munawwara, surrounding areas. It wasn't so such a large area. Therefore, reliance on memory was greater, and the Arabic mastery was something which made it easy for them to absorb uh, and remember those, those types of revelation and verses as well. The other reason for not uh, compiling all the verses of the Qur'an in the form of one book in the time of Rasulullah sallallahu was while he was alive, there was always constantly the chance of a verse being revealed. So if you now put it in between two covers and you present and say, okay, this is the Qur'an, and now Rasulullah sallallahu is alive and verses are being revealed, then it becomes difficult again, once again, to adjust the way the verses have been already prepared, and if, especially if it needed to be placed uh, in between two verses or two surahs. Then we have another word which you can see in front of you, Naskh. Okay, we can't make it a bit bigger because of the distance of the... Inshallah, next week we'll try to... So I hope everybody can see the... The last word is Naskh. Naskh is uh, the translation of the word. It's actually abrogation, the abrogation of a verse. So this is a separate, separate topic itself in the, in the science of tafsir. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like the example I gave of intoxicants, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first said that there is benefit and harm, the harm is more. And then that verse now was abrogated and cancelled with the verse of La taqrabu salah, do not go close to salah in the state of being intoxicated. And uh, the last verse was Fajitanibuhu, abstain completely. So if a person um, 
if everything was now documented and certain verses now certain verses needed uh, to be understood as the the rule of that particular verse is cancelled and abrogated, if everything is all together, nobody would know what is still the instruction for the present time and what is not. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although in the in the verses of the Quran there are those verses which are abrogated in its hukam and its ruling, but in recitation they are still recited as verses of the of the Quran. Like these three verses which I just indicated to. So the two verses have been abrogated, but they are still left as uh, recitation in the Quran. Why? As an indication to show how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gradually prepared the Sahaba for the ultimate instruction. So like in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave verses of the Bani Israel that this thing was permissible and it became impermissible in the next sharia. So similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by leaving these verses as recited uh, uh, verses of the Quran, indicates to us how gradually they were prepared for a particular point and level of their uh, spirituality and being able to, to act upon the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the reasons also, obviously, was the scarcity of writing material, which wasn't so common. So some of the Sahaba would write on, on the skin, uh, the dry skin of an animal. Some would use a shoulder bone of a camel. Some would write on the bark of a tree. And only up to time when, when, when Egypt was conquered, in the Khilaf of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, where they were exposed now to paper and papyrus and the various other types of material, which made uh, reading and writing much more uh, convenient and easy. So there was a scarcity, uh, and this is one of the reasons why it was not uh, easy for them to put everything together all at one time. Illiteracy was prevalent. Yes, this is the case, but uh, I think it shouldn't be exaggerated to the point where people think that nobody could read and write. There were people who were able to read and write, and especially amongst the educated um, uh, of the leaders of the Quraysh. For Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, not being able to read and write was a sign of his nubuwa and prophethood so that people would not uh, attribute any um, uh, allegations or accuse him of, of fabricating anything and attributing it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the primacy of the, of, uh, the Arabic written language. The Arabic written language, uh, it evolved and it grew more after the revelation of the Quran in the time of the Islamic empire of the Khulafa al-Rashidun. They, they had a plain script the Arabic language, like if you look in the Mus'haf, we've got dots, okay? And we've got the Zabar, Zair, Pesh, Fatha, Dhamma, and Kasra. Now, the Arabs wouldn't read the original Arabic. It's like if we had to say in English, uh, the man sleeps on the... And the word bed, we just spell B-D. So those of us who speak English, we know it's not bad, and it's not a bud, uh, but it's automatically we'll understand in the context of that sentence, it means a bed. So similarly, the Arabs also, knowing the, the flavor and the essence of their language, they would be able to read even without dots, without the vowels, and it was something easy for them. Unlike the foreigner like us, when we start learning the language, then we realize, okay, we need to learn a particular set of rules in order for us to be able to grasp what is, what is the desired pronunciation of the word and the sentence. Okay, we're running a bit behind. I tried to just... Um, I'm not sure if we'll finish what we have, but we'll try, inshallah, whatever we can do. Otherwise, we'll continue next week. This is a very important part of our lesson. The Quran was written down during the lifetime of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, although not together in one mushaf, so not in one book form. Okay, and the, 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 this is what we touched on this already, the story of Sayyidina Umar accepting Islam. This has been mentioned in Ad-Daru Qutni, a book of hadith, 
That is a reference you can check up afterwards, inshallah. Um, there is a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari where Rasulullah prohibited taking the Qur'an into enemy lands, which means um, that it was, it was documented in the lifetime of Rasulullah had The Qur'an was written for him to say, don't take it into the... And that refers to those lands in which there is a chance of disrespect being shown to the Qur'an. It doesn't mean that if you're traveling, you, can, you shouldn't take your Qur'an with you if you're traveling to a non-Muslim country. No, obviously it refers to those times of tension uh, in the era of Rasulullah sallallahu where if somebody came into contact with the text of the Qur'an, they would, be, they would perhaps potentially show disrespect to it. Then there are virtues of looking inside the Mus'haf and reading it. Uh, in a hadith mentioned in Tabarani, in fact in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in Abu Dawood says, uh, Looking in the Mus'haf, in the Qur'an is also ibadah. To look at the Kaaba is also ibadah. People go for Hajj and they say, no, we're tired to make, tawa- uh, to, to make Tawaf. Then you sit and look at the Kaaba, it's also ibadah. And to look at your parents with love and affection is also ibadah. So just a glance sometimes. Uh, is counted as ibadah. So the fact that Rasulullah says looking in a mushaf, looking in a copy of the Quran is ibadah, is proof that in his lifetime it would have been documented for him to make reference to it. And the fourth point is Rasulullah had scriveners or scribes of wahi. Like scribes are the Khulafa Rashidun, Abu Bakr, Umar, Sayyidina Umar was amongst the famous of them. There were about 60 of the scribes of revelation. So there would only be a scribe if something needs to be written. If the Qur'an was not documented, then how can we have uh, tons of, of sahaba who were known to be in the company of Rasulullah sallallahu documenting what was revealed unto him. Now we have, okay, five minutes, and this is where we commence the compilation of Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu Sayyidina Abu Bakr is the Khalifa after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with the unanimous uh, decision of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and with clear indications from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his status is known as the highest person in rank after the Anbiya alayhim salatu wassalam. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the last few days of his blessed life in which he was unable to lead the salah of con- in congregation, he appointed Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq to lead the Ummah in 19 salawat. And the person who is uh, worthy of leading the, the congregation of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in 19 salawat obviously is suitable to lead them in the other aspects of their life. So the passing away of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam now yielded many challenges. There was a, a claim to nubuwa and prophethood and um, there was no more wahi that was going to be sent because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is no longer on the face of this earth. Therefore, there's no need to worry about an abrogated verse or verse being placed in between two other verses. And amongst the challenges which faced the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, one was the challenge of the imposter, whose name was Musaylama al-Kadhab. He was a person who claimed prophethood. At the end of the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he came from the area called Najd, which is the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula. So Musaylama he had strong followers of, uh, well, actually Bedouins by nature, nomadic. And uh, he sent a letter to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam saying, Min Musaylama, he says, Min Musaylama Rasulillah ila Muhammad Rasulillah. From Musaylama, 
He says, the Prophet of Allah to Muhammad, the Prophet of Allah. And he says, that Jibreel that came to you, he came to me as well. And he just said, you know what, we need to divide the Arabian Peninsula half-half. You take your share and I take my share and we'll just live in peace. And Rasulullah sallallahu replied and said, Min Muhammadin Rasulillah ila Musaylama al-Kadhab. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi then sent, the, the word Kadhab means the, the biggest liar. You can't get a stage of lying after that. The imposter. So he was from Yamama. He was from Najd and there was a place called Yamama. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi dispatched before he passed away the army of Sayyidina Usama in which there were senior Sahaba radiallahu anhum who uh, accompanied Sayyidina Usama who was 18 or 19 years of age as the Amir of that particular group. And in that battle, uh, Musaylama was killed and he was killed by the, the, the Sahabi, the Abyssinian Sahabi, the African Sahabi. Africa has got a lot of accolades in the life of Rasulullah They gave refuge to Rasulullah and his companions and Nabi only one person got permission in, Nabi, in Rasulullah sallallahu life to climb onto the Kaaba and give adhan and that was Sayyidina Bilal uh, the, the Mu'addin of Rasulullah sallallahu after him Muhammad bin Salman decided to do the same anyway so the battle of Yamama ensued and Musaylama was killed by Wahshi ibn Harb the one who assassinated the uncle of Rasulullah sallallahu in the battle of Uhud and he mutilated his body and cut his chest open and the story is well known so he became Muslim uh, due to the good character of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his invitation and then he, and he joined this expedition and he killed Musaylama, the imposter but while this had happened many of the senior sahaba who were scholars who were amongst the scribes and amongst the hafiz the, those who had memorized the entire Quran they were martyred in the, in the battle the intensity of the battle was so much that many, about five or six hundred passed away in that particular battle um, so this was one of the things which necessitated Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, uh, he, he, and this incident is mentioned in Bukhari and I think perhaps we'll start from here maybe next week because we've got two minutes I don't want to rush to it it's a very important part of our historical legacy of the compilation of the Quran so inshallah we'll commence from, from this part of our same dars um, which actually elaborates on the steps taken and what was the motivating and prompting factors to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq agreeing to the Quran now being uh, compiled and put in a book form uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to appreciate all the sacrifice and efforts that were made by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and give us a share in the thawab and the reward of, of uh, their efforts and endeavors insha'Allah wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Allahumma aghfir lana wa rahamna وارضى عنا وتقبل منا وادخلنا الجنة ونجنا من النار وأصلح لنا شأننا كله ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين الحمد لله رب العالمين